Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. My name is Sophia, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, uh, Dean. Hello, everyone. Also, Alex is here today. Hello. And we're actually welcoming a new member of our team, Deba. Welcome. Hey there. So Deba, tell us about what got you interested in uh, earth sciences. Well, I originally went into university with the intention of studying math, and I'm definitely still studying math, but the earth sciences, I was really drawn to the discipline because of how integrative it was. It let me pursue my passion of biology and chemistry and physics all kind of wrapped into one. Nice. And what got you interested in starting uh, joining us on the podcast? I have a huge passion for science communication. I think it's really, really important right now that there is open and accessible communication between scientists and the general public. And I also think it is really cool that you guys get to speak to all of the amazing guests that you have on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And and I mean, perfect segue. Uh, today's guest is Andy Parmenter from the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. So welcome, Andy. Hello, everyone. And uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. Thanks for being here. Uh, we, we're actually just going to start off the episode with a uh, kind of summary statement that the NWMO provided for us. So, uh, Alex, uh, would you care reading that? Yeah, for sure. Um, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, NWMO, is a not-for-profit organization tasked with the safe, long-term storage of Canada's used nuclear fuel in a manner that protects people and the environment for generations to come. The NWMO is implementing Canada's plan to safely contain and isolate used nuclear fuel inside a deep geological repository. The plan is based on years of public input, Indigenous knowledge, international scientific consensus, and best practices from around the world. Canada's plan will only proceed in an area with informed and willing hosts, where the municipality, First Nations, and Métis communities, and others in the area are working together to implement it. The NWMO plans to select a site in 2023, and two areas remain in our site selection process, the Ignace area and South Bruce, both in Ontario. Transparent and accountable, the NWMO works in close cooperation with communities, all levels of government, national and international regulators, Indigenous peoples, industry, academia, and civil society organizations. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Alex. So yeah, um, Andy, what's your role within uh, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization? And kind of tell us about your career path and how you got to where you are today. Okay, well, I'll start um, my current role with uh, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. I am uh, I work in the geoscience group. And my role is uh, I manage the integration and synthesis of uh, the geological information. So we have a uh, a large group uh, in geoscience, uh, some of whom are overseeing the, the collection of the data uh, in the field, uh, and some of us who are, I guess, really putting together the geological story. You know, if I take a step back and think about uh, what got me interested in geoscience in general, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, and, and I'm not sure how it is these days, but uh, back finishing high school, there weren't specific geoscience courses. You know, we had all the other uh, regular science uh, courses, but you know, I always had a enjoyment of working in the outdoors, and um, certainly starting to think about um, a future career path. Realizing that geoscience really does bring together a lot of the traditional sciences, and, and it's it's fascinating also just to have the opportunity to learn a bit more about the Earth 
you know, we walk around on this earth every day and uh, I have had the opportunity to, to see lots of different parts of our country um, through studying geology and uh, other parts of the world as well. Um, and so ultimately I started, at earth, uh, I started an earth sciences degree at the University of Waterloo uh, and completed my undergraduate there. And I had throughout my undergraduate, I guess, um, experience, had the opportunity to work for uh, the federal uh, government's uh, Geological Survey of Canada um, working up in, uh, up in Nunavut, you know, and working out in, out in the barren lands, ultimately, uh, you know, in a small field camp, uh, living in a tent, uh, all summer, hiking every day. Uh, and, and that just appealed to me so much. And, and I just, I decided to, uh, do a master's degree, uh, where I had the opportunity to work in, uh, Northern Manitoba, uh, in the Superior Province. Um, you know, my first foray into studying, uh, Archean greenstone belts, and just learning about the really uh, understanding the ancient history of uh, uh, of the earth and and then you know i uh, i i took a bit of time and uh after my master's was completed and then uh wasn't exactly sure what i was going to do uh but ultimately decided to uh pursue a phd uh so i went up to the university of new brunswick and again i had the opportunity to uh visit some uh, incredible places. I was working in southeastern British Columbia in the, the, the core of the, the Cordilleran uh, mountain chain uh, in southeastern and uh, southeastern British Columbia. And um, but ultimately, I, I must say, you know, I never did quite put all the things together to uh, complete my uh, my PhD. You know, it was still I, the, the journey and the learning uh, along the way was uh, still a very important process. And, and I you know, in reflection, everyone's career path, uh, you're not necessarily sure what you're going to end up doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that kind of story uh, would probably fit a lot of people, um, you know, redirects in, in your uh, career trajectory. And it's, it's nice to hear that it turned out for you. Yeah, thanks very much. The nuclear waste management, uh, like industry, um, when it when you first joined, uh, how was it different? How is it different from what it is now? Would you how would you say it's uh, kind of evolved? In my day-to-day life uh, before joining the organization, I, you know, I didn't, maybe I took for granted where, where our electricity comes from, and I didn't really necessarily think about it too much, the nuclear industry in general. But what I can say is, um, in the years that I've been with the organization, now 11 years, uh, what I've seen is, is the strong commitment, I think, to, to bring... Um, communities along in the process to bring people along in in the discussion this is seeing that nothing is is being forced or imposed on on people it's all being done through discussion and and with transparency and and um you know ultimately we there's a uh, used nuclear fuel that that needs to be safely managed for an extremely long amount of time and i think i i appreciate that there are, you know, geoscientists involved in this discussion for development of a, of a deep geological repository. It's not simply um, a political decision or, or things imposed, you know, at, at higher levels of organizations. We are, mm-hmm. I think, taking more of a grassroots approach to to the discussion and to um, work to get this project um, uh, successfully implemented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like a shift for the better, for sure. So yeah, our, our listeners actually might remember um, our episode with Don Davis, where we spoke about storing nuclear waste and also how previous generations of governments have kind of 
pawned off to the next because of how complex the problem is. Similarly to how like addressing the impacts of climate change have been passed down to our generation now today. Um, so for this episode, we're, we're taking a more technical leap into what makes a good nuclear waste storage repository. But before that, I always like to look at some statistics that'll kind of put these questions into, into context. So uh, from the government of Canada, uh, Canada is the second largest largest producer uh, and fourth largest exporter of uranium in the world. So uranium being the starting material of the chemical reaction called nuclear fission, where a uranium atom is hit by a neutron, which then causes the nucleus to split. And then this reaction releases a lot of energy uh, in the form of heat, which is then used to power nuclear reactors. And in 2018, actually 15% of Canada's electricity overall was powered by nuclear energy. Uh, which uh, itself emits no greenhouse gases, but um, the process of uranium extraction, building plants, uh, et cetera, um, does contribute some CO2. And this actually, this percentage, 15%, that's an overall uh, percentage, but some uh, provinces actually use as much as I think 60% uh, of their electricity day by day uh, fueled by nuclear energy. So in terms of the nuclear waste itself, uh, most of it is low level and intermediate level waste, which can be handled safely uh, and placed in surface level repositories um, with kind of minimum shielding in the transport process. And then the high level waste is the one that needs to be placed underground. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, and the World Nuclear uh, Association estimates that there's currently 22,000 cubic meters of high level waste worldwide that is not yet disposed of. And so it needs to be put in these kind of long-term storages. And so Dean, uh, take it away with, uh, with the summary. Yes, thank you, Sophia. Uh, so Andy, you've provided us with a sample geology report that your team produced. Uh, this one specifically is the bedrock geology of the Ravel Bathlith and surrounding greenstone belts. It's a description of the bedrock geology in an area northwest of the community of Ignace and to the southeast of the Wabagoon Lake Ojibwe Nation in Northwestern Ontario. It was previously identified as being potentially suitable for hosting a deep geological repository. So Andy, can you tell me what is a deep geological repository? A deep geological repository, it's a mine facility. It has your typical shafts and, and um, tunnels and emplacement rooms. Uh, within which the, the waste will be stored uh, inside um, uh, engineered canisters. And so the, uh, the report shows 11 bedrock units um, um, described in the study area. You have five greenstone belt bedrock units um, assigned to the Archean Age supracrustal rock group. Five additional bedrock units are assigned to the Archean Age plutonic rock group and the Proterozoic aged mafic dikes belonging to the Wabagoon dikes, which represent the youngest bedrock. So with, with these, can you generally describe the chronological formation of the area and, and how long ago that was? Right. So we're, where we're studying in Northwestern Ontario would be what we would um, describe as a typical granite greenstone belt terrain. So we have the, the supercrustal rocks uh, referred to in the report are are what are informally referred to as greenstone belts. So if you're driving around in northern Ontario, you see a very sharp contrast between usually dark green or brownish colored rocks and the light, 
the whites or the pinks of the of the granitoid body. So looking at the the supercrustal rocks, first of all, they're Archean age. So we're looking at uh, 2.7 billion year old uh, volcanic rocks. Um, so you know, pillow basalts, things that you might see today uh, coming out in uh, extruding in Hawaii, for example, or things like that. Uh, basaltic rocks, you get associated sedimentary rocks, uh, quite a mix uh, of different um, volcanic and sedimentary uh, rock units in the, in the, that are all termed together supercrustal rocks. And those are fundamentally different from the, uh, the granitoid bodies, the big, you know, often on geological maps, big pink, pink bodies, um, very homogeneous, you know, um, much less variation in character. Um, and that's uh, certainly why uh, this location has a lot of the, um, the suitable characteristics we're looking for. And we're focused on, on the Ravel Bathwith, the northern portion of the Ravel Bathwith. It is one of these relatively uh, large granitoid bodies that is extremely homogeneous from a lithological point of view. Um, and uh, again, much different than the, the surrounding greenstone belts. Um, and it has, uh, yeah, the, the Bathwith itself has um, uh, one of the key characteristics is that, uh, you know, it is relatively uh, uniform and we can therefore with, you know, the idea being with relatively few boreholes in the ground, start to develop an understanding, a conceptual model of what, uh, of what that body of rock looks like. Yeah, it sounds like uh, there's, it's quite a process for, for getting to understand uh, this, this area. Can you kind of describe the steps in creating a geological report like this? Like, how do you, how do you get your original data? And, and also, where do you find external data to use? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's uh, actually the Ontario Geological Survey um, has a lot of historic maps, um, maps uh, created in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, they had a lot of uh, boots on the ground um, geologists going out and, and doing a lot of mapping work in a lot of ways for looking for natural resources. That's, uh, that's one of the, the key reasons why, uh, why government surveys are, are, are out uh, doing a lot of that mapping. So, so one of the things we did is we looked through all the available historic maps uh, around the area and you know they would they would cover a, a portion of the of uh, what we've defined as this this uh, our study area in and around the township of Ignis and Wobbly and Lake Ojibwe Nation. And so we take uh, we look at uh, you know we look through and and find all the available historic maps. And sometimes they'll have uh, very well defined geological contacts that we can uh, transfer onto our updated map of the area. Um, and so that's one piece is really exploring what's available in the historic data set. Part of this project, we also um, contracted out to uh, fly a, a LIDAR survey, which is a high resolution uh, imagery of the, of the surface. And it provides us with uh, a new digital elevation model um, so that we can also use that to help refine the geological boundaries. Oftentimes, different rock types will have uh, different uh, surface characteristics and so we can help use that use that to help us define the geological contacts and then uh, uh, the other um, very important piece is we also had uh, airborne geophysical surveys uh, flown across the area and again the uh, there is a strong magnetic contrast between the the granitoid rocks and the the many of the supercrustal rocks um, that surround it so we used all these um, layers of information 
to refine um, the distribution of the different rock types. And really one of the key things we wanted to do with this study was um, better define the contact between the Rebel Bathworth and the surrounding uh, supercrustal rocks. And then certainly we also had some, um, uh, some mapping work done in the center of uh, the northern part of the Rebel Bathworth where we're focusing uh, to really understand if, if truly this general characteristic of uh, Archean Bathworths that, that they're relatively homogeneous, um, uh, you know, mythologically, you can you can walk for you know kilometers in, in any direction, and the composition doesn't change very much, and, and that's a very uh, a very good positive quality for, for the type of rock we're looking for. And so, um, so we ultimately it's it is a combination of his, uh, reviewing historically available data, um, collecting some additional um, uh, remote sensing data and boots on the ground geology and bringing all that together to develop, um, you know, uh, really our, our current best understanding of the distribution of the different rock types. Very cool. And so this, this report acts as a foundation for, for future steps um, on the feasibility of it as a, as a repository. So what are the next steps that, that have to happen before any kind of implementation is done? Well, uh, you know, a couple things. We took the this, and you're exactly right. This is um, it's a stepping stone. This is the, the 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 geological framework really does set the stage for all the different studies. And so, with this two dimensional representation of the geology, the surface uh, distribution of the rock units, we uh, we had some work done to develop a three dimensional uh, model. So we also had, uh, along with the the airborne magnetic survey, we had an airborne gravity survey completed. Um, so we, you know, one of the fundamental questions that we have to answer is, is this rock unit we're studying thick enough? Um, does it have enough volume underground? And so we used uh, the distribution of the, of the rock units at the surface. And again, um, an available, publicly available petrophysical database of rock characteristics like rock densities and whatnot. And you can use this information to build a three-dimensional uh, geophysical model. And to give a good understanding of the, I guess, the, the subsurface ex, um, projection of rock contact. So, so we're able to understand that this Ravel Bathworth is approximately two and a half to three kilometers thick in the area of, of where we're exploring, which is definitely plenty of, of rock volume to work with. So that's one thing, you know, we, we wanted to be confident that when we start borehole drilling, which is uh, the step that we're taking right now, we are, we are drilling deep, uh, deep boreholes. We wanted to make sure that we had the sufficient volume, or at least that was our hypothesis, that we had the sufficient volume. And the borehole drilling that we're doing um, to date is, uh, is giving us the confidence that, that those interpretations were correct. Our, our, we are drilling uh, one kilometer long boreholes, and, uh, and to date we, we are we are quite confident that we are drilling into the middle of, of a very homogeneous uh, granitoid body. Mm, nice. So you kind of slightly inter answered this next one, but um, you don't mention specifically in the report whether or not it's going to be suitable yet because there's still more research to be done. But how do you think it looks at this point? Um, I'm assuming you've looked at other similar geological settings. And so how does how does this kind of look? Yeah, well, you know, it's a, that is a, a really good question. And actually, it's, it is another very interesting thing about this work is not many people drill boreholes in the middle of uh, an otherwise relatively boring granitoid rock. So this is very much 
uh, we're learning with every single borehole. We, and to date, we've drilled three deep boreholes. And so in a, in a crystalline rock environment where you do have the potential for lateral variation in the geology, uh, what I can say is at this point from the, from the, the few boreholes we've drilled to date, our hypothesis that uh, the rock would be relatively homogeneous and consistent, uh, that's, that's borne out to be uh, a true assessment. You know, the, the, the composition of the, the main unit is a, uh, ranges between a granodiorite and a tonalite, which is a, you know, a slight variation in the amount of uh, potassium in the, in the bedrock. But otherwise, the characteristics are, are very, um, uh, are not, the, the characteristics and the composition, um, they're, they're not changing uh, uh, very much. They're, they're very um, consistent. And so, you know, from that point of view, the rock is, is very amenable to, to characterization. You know, it's, it would be a different story if every borehole we drilled started was, was quite different. But to date, every borehole we're drilling, everything is looking the same. So certainly that's giving us some amount of confidence that um, the rock we're exploring in this, in this uh, area is um, we can you know, start to extrapolate um, the understanding from each borehole or interpolate it, I guess, between, uh, between boreholes in the volume uh, surrounding it. Um, one of the things that, that uh, you have to really be careful of is not poking too many holes into, into this rock. And these rocks need to be able to be characterized with a, with a relatively small number of boreholes for that, for that reason. Uh, you know, other characteristics, we are certainly doing a complete uh, core logging program. So we log all fractures. We, uh, we are identifying um, other, other characteristics like foliation. We looked at, you know, we mapped uh, small scale shear zones. Um, we are collecting water samples where uh, opportunity arises. And, you know, the, the collective uh, information to date does not indicate that this rock doesn't have the, the um, characteristics that we're looking for. And in fact, um, I would say that, yeah, to date, there's, there's nothing in the information that we've collected to date that suggests that it's not potentially suitable. What sort of monitoring goes on once, this re- once the repository has been filled? So, like, what kind of things are you doing at the surface to make sure that... Um, you know, radiation isn't escaping or getting into groundwater, things like that. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I, I must say that's not really my area of expertise. But my understanding is, and and how we, we describe it uh, right now, is that the facility will, will be open for, I think it's approximately 200 years, um, that, that the facility will be open and, and monitored. Um, but ultimately, the idea is that there will be, um, it will be, passively safe and will not require um, uh, very much uh, additional long-term monitoring once we've uh, reached a certain amount of time in the future. Just a quick kind of follow-up on that question, because I did hear that one of the things that it, like surrounds uh, nuclear waste storage is people thinking, well, in the future, if we can figure out a way to use that nuclear waste for, I don't know, if we figure out how to upcycle it um, or, or recycle it, I should say, people might may want to you know drill into and open up that repository so would they use the the geological report that's kind of generated to see what the potential of you know drilling into that is like is the idea to seal it off completely so that no one will be able to enter it ever or is the idea to potentially you know keep it open yeah i guess uh, what i would say to that is again my understanding is that uh the 
it will there is a, a certain amount of time in the future where there will be uh, the, the used nuclear fuel will be retrievable. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly if uh, new technologies do come about, I guess that, that, that provide an, an alternative uh, solution to dealing with, uh, with used nuclear fuel, then um, the, the retrievability is, is an option uh, to a certain point. But at some point, my understanding of the idea is that, that it will be um, uh, ultimately closed and just left to passively uh, decay back to natural background radiation levels. Probably a good call for now. Yeah. Um, and again, I think the window of time that, that uh, the repository is open does, does certainly allow uh, um, for future technologies to come along to explore other, other uh, options for the solution. But one thing I, I, will, I will say, and, and it is also an important factor that we have to uh, consider in, in uh, locating a potential repository site is we do have to consider the, the possibility that in the future, humans will be exploring for natural resources. Um, and would they consider poking a hole in, into this spot? So we have what we call future human intrusion scenarios um, that we have to consider. And, and so, you know, again, part of the reason why we are looking in the, the different rock formations that we are is because they're, they're, and based on current knowledge, there are no natural resources uh, within them. Uh, there are no, uh, you know, base metals and no uh, precious metals, no uh, freshwater resources at the, at the depth of the repository um, and things like that. So no, we're, we are thinking and trying to ensure that uh, the area that we ultimately do choose, there is nothing there that would give people a reason to explore um, for for anything or, or start yeah start looking around in that, in that specific location. So I'm I'm wondering, is there any relationship or collaboration with the indigenous communities in and around the surveyed site? We certainly uh, are involving the the local First Nations and Métis communities um, uh, in a lot of aspects in this project. You know, uh, when we were determining some of the locations to do some boots on the ground field work, for example, um, we allowed the the local Indigenous uh, peoples to uh, provide input on on locations where they would prefer that we did not uh, do further investigation. Uh, They didn't give us a lot of the details, but they they did identify, for example, um, in general, where they might have had some uh, sacred sites on the land or where, you know, locations just had a, a certain importance to the community. And uh, we were happy to oblige and, and not move forward with uh, additional investigations in those locations. And, you know, in addition, as we move forward, um, and certainly in the, in the Ignis area where, uh, where we've been working for the last several years, uh, we've involved... Um, people from the, the local First Nations uh, Métis communities to be involved as environmental monitors as we are doing our field work, some of the borehole drilling programs, so they have the opportunity to uh, oversee and uh, ensure that things are being done with um, care and, uh, and, and certainly um, with attention to making sure that, uh, that we keep the environment uh, uh, as clean as possible in, in a, such an industrial site as a, as a borehole drilling, for example. And they also have the opportunity to uh, join us when we're doing uh, additional field work. We uh, appreciate having uh, local guides uh, come out with uh, 
us when we're doing, uh, for example, uh, detailed mapping work in the field. And so the uh, nuclear waste that would be potentially stored here, would this um, be solely Canada's uh, nuclear waste or is there the potential that we'd be importing nuclear waste from other countries to store? Uh, my understanding is that this would only be Canada's nuclear waste. And I believe that's even, uh, you know, it's been in the, in the news recently, um, uh, certain stories about that, but, uh, uh, our mandate is to, uh, deal with Canada's, uh, use nuclear fuel. So I'm really interested, I mean, uh, in, in terms of the collaboration between the NWMO and the, and the government, in, in your opinion, do you think uh, that nuclear waste storage should be a public concern, so the, the government's responsibility, or should it be the, the private sector? I guess in my opinion, um, the way that the process uh, is occurring right now is uh, seems to be a reasonable uh, approach. So we are regulated by the federal government, and ultimately... The, the federal government has to approve um, of any any proposal for, for where this project will, will end up. We have to go through uh, uh, federal licensing um, with the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission um, in order to get the approval to get licenses to, to prepare a site and to start to construct a facility. Now, the, the nuclear power producers do pay into a, uh, a fund. Um, so they are they are funding this work, but they are not, uh, I guess, in, in control of the, of the decision making. Um, so I think the decision making being, um, you know, again, in my opinion, I think the decision making being uh, in the hands of the federal uh, government is is uh, a reasonable approach. Um, so I'm looking at this really cool website called electricitymap.org, and on it you can kind of see all of the different energy grids of the world and what is currently uh, fueling them. And so right now, uh, Ontario, this is uh, about four o'clock in the afternoon uh, on May the 7th, uh, 2021. Uh, Ontario is producing about 60.5% of its electricity from nuclear. Um, about 2% of its electricity is coming from wind, um, utilizing only about 6% of its installed capacity. So I guess the wind's not really blowing for us right now. Um, and hydro, um, meaning the water power, it, that's contributing to about 24% uh, of our electricity production. And we're using about 6% um, is coming from nas natural gas. So the differences in the carbon intensity or the CO2 emissions from this would be for nuclear, 12 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. For wind, it's 11 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. For hydro, it's 24 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. And for natural gas, it's 490 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Um, and those, those estimates are from the IPCC report of 2014. So I just kind of want to just kind of put this stuff out here. Right now we are, um, let's see, what are we? We are the 17th greenest grid in the world right now, um, despite wind not really working for us um, at this moment. And I think a lot of that is thanks to nuclear, which has such a large percentage of our grid, and it also a really low CO2 emission. So I kind of, I, I know this is totally an, an opinion, it's not really your expertise, but I'm sure you've probably thought about this a bit. What do you think of nuclear's place 
um, in the future and, and its contributions toward fighting climate change, both either in the short term or the long term? I mean, it's clear, certainly in in the you know in the numbers that uh, that you're reporting that nuclear does play a, a large role in our electricity grid, and um, based on its yeah certainly its uh, carbon output, um, it's more part of the solution um, to uh, to reducing uh, greenhouse gases. I think the, the the one of the very interesting aspects of that question is that right now it it seems to be the 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 best solution to deal with the 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 base load of energy that is required by our society um and i and i honestly don't think right now that there's any real way around that that there are other other electricity generating options that can provide the same amount of stability to our electricity system Base load and stability, the stable portion of energy production, right? That's right, exactly. And, you know, with increased reliance on um, electricity, you know, electric cars, uh, our cell phones, everything, everything is plugged in. Um, so ultimately, at present, uh, nuclear does seem to be, um, uh, yeah, an important part of the electricity grid. and. I honestly right now don't see another option that that does quite what nuclear uh, energy does. Now, as we move uh, into the future, um, if other op- options come along that that can that provide the, the same baseload power or even more importantly, if we can figure out a way to reduce our reliance on electricity, find ways to reduce our consumption. I would be uh, I'd be very happy to see that our society evolve in in that way, where you know it is not um, you know it's not necessarily a requirement that we need an alternative to provide the same amount of base load power, but maybe we just hopefully won't need as much uh, of that base load to to thrive as a society. And um, I'm all for finding solutions that uh, that uh, reduce our overall consumption. Right, because anytime I look at a graph that like projects our energy consumption like a hundred years to the future, it just keeps going up, and that makes me think, well, how are we going to? So we're moving away from 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 oil and natural gas. Well, how like what, what's going to meet those demands? And that's always the question. So, yeah, it's it, it's it's a question of whether we should. I mean, it's it's not even a question. We should definitely reduce our consumption, but then how are we going to meet? that already existing you know baseline level of consumption that we need i think uh, i think we're running a little bit short on time so maybe we'll move on to the to the kind of to the ending questions um so yeah um what brings you optimism in the in the current day and age that's a great question you know i just got my first vaccination for uh COVID. um and that uh you know that brings me a lot of hope and optimism uh that we will get back to some sort of a, of a new normal, I guess. Um, and, you know, I have two uh, young children and seeing them grow, uh, you know, that always brings me optimism. Um, also, speaking with uh, folks like yourselves, uh, the younger generation of geoscientists, passionate about, uh, about your work and, and learning and asking 
good, interesting, and tough questions. I, I think that really also gives me a lot of optimism for the future. Um, I think we all share a you know, strong passion for the earth and a desire to learn. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's always uh, an exciting time to be a geoscientist. My question, my ending question would be, um, if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences, your field, or whatever field, what mystery would that be? There's so many mysteries out there, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. hard to choose. There are so many mysteries out there. I don't know how much how great of a, a mystery this is, but you know, one thing that that really fascinates me actually a lot about, uh, and, and it, I confess it is a it is related to geology, uh, but you know, I, I look at um, like our, our fossil record, um, and and you know our our ability to learn and understand about um, you know animals or organisms that. Uh, that were here many tens or hundreds of millions of years ago. And, and we are, we are only seeing a very small um, snapshot, a very small slice of, of the whole population uh, and ecosystem that was, that was around at, at any time in the past. So I think if one, I guess, mystery that I would like to be able to solve, I think it would be really interesting to, you know, to, to really be able to, understand the full picture of how different organisms interacted in, in, let's say in the, in the Cretaceous period, you know, maybe even interestingly, like right before the, the, the meteorite impact at the, the KT boundary, things like that, you know, what really was going on, you know, we see, you know, we see footprints in mud and, and partial skeletons and things like that, but what, what really was uh, was the Earth like back then? I think that's, and you know, I I would say we all certainly there is a there's a vast database of understanding, um, but maybe part of the, the the question I still have is is that how much different is the reality than than the the concept that we built up in our minds, uh, you know, through uh, studying the rocks. Right. It's like that geologic saying, I think it goes something like the geologic record is more gap than record. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I don't know. So, something we learned about in sedimentology. Yeah. <laughs> Sediments and stratigraphy. Yeah, it's so true. I, I wanted to ask one quick question before, before we move on to the quote. Uh, how does one even get to work for the NWMO as a, as a geologist, as a geoscientist that's, you know, testing, uh, testing the, 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 the ground and, and seeing if this is a good uh, good place for a repository. I guess this is a little bit of a plug. Yeah, ultimately, uh, the NWMO, the, the, the end goal is, is to build a, a deep geological repository. So, so right there, you, you can understand there is a role for geoscientists um, in this organization. And, you know, not just traditional geology, but, um, you know, we have to look at the hydrogeochemistry, we have to look at the uh, uh, hydrogeology. We have to we have to understand geometry. We have to you know we have to bring microbiology into into it. We we bring all different aspects of of geoscience into this. And so I would say how you get into an organization like this is being passionate about geology. Ultimately, there's there are, are um, lots of opportunities for for 
any application of all different kinds of, uh, of uh, geoscience areas of interest, uh, interest to, to, to students to, to uh, there's, there, there is a requirement for applying all different types of, uh, of geoscience study to, to the work that we do. And so the, the opportunities are, are extremely broad. It's it's amazing to hear that you kind of bring in all these different all these different fields into kind of this this one goal of building this repository. So yeah, a lot of opportunity there, um, mm-hmm. as Andy said. Yeah. Uh, okay. So thank you so much. I'm gonna hand off. You know, as per tradition, uh, Dean's gonna read us a quote that he found. All right. Yes, <laughs> that I found on Google. <laughs> um, so all right, the quote says. Fathoming deep time is arguably geology's single greatest contribution to humanity. Just as the microscope and the telescope extended our vision into spatial realms, once too minuscule or too immense for us to see, geology provides a lens through which we can witness time in a way that transcends the limits of our human experiences. And that was by Marcia Bjornerud, probably not how it's pronounced, professor of geology and environmental studies at Lawrence University in Wisconsin, and the author of Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. I love that. I just love that quote. And I really just want to read her book. <laughs> right on. Timefulness is the new mindfulness. Yes. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks for the quote, Dean. And thank you so much, Andy, for being on our show today. It was fantastic to get to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, again, I really appreciate the opportunity and it's nice to uh, meet and chat with you all. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you tune in next time for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no rock unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.